Somebody say amen. amen. Wow, what a song. What a song. And it uh, really goes well with the closing of this small book of James that we've been studying for the last several months. Because out of all people that James would address to close this powerful short book, he addresses those in the church who have strayed from God. Those who have walked away from truth. And those that remain. And he says to those that have walked away from the truth, God wants to save you. He wants to rescue you. And he says to those remaining in the church, go help the ones that are not here. That's the title of the message today. Helping the wandering Christian. Helping the wandering Christian. I'm, I'm grieving of sorts today in my spirit because I have so enjoyed preaching through the book of James. I've loved the study. I've loved how it's been timely on certain Sundays for our church. And God just does that so often. I've loved what I've learned from study. I hope you've benefited from this book of the Bible as well. Um, next Sunday I'll be gone. Um, I'll be preaching um, for a pastor that's actually preached for us a couple of times by the name of Ryan Thompson. Um, they have a, a camp in, in Southern California. And I'll be preaching the camp all week and preaching at their church the Sunday before the camp. So I to covet your prayers. Uh, pastor Tanner, Pastor David will be filling the pulpit next week with whatever God lays on their heart. And then in two weeks from now, starting in July, um, I'm going to begin a nine-week series through the summer. On prayer. And, and we're going to talk about why we should pray and how we should pray. And here's what I really believe. I really believe this church. When you, when you get the aspect of prayer down. When it becomes a regular passionate part of your Christian life. So many other things fall in place. But what I found is God's people can usually read their Bibles better than they can pray. They can come to church better than they can pray. Often they can even give better than they can pray. So it's a burden of mine. Whenever you learn how to have a healthy conversation with your father, it changes your life. When it, he's not just a spare tire in case of emergency, but he's your friend. He's your best friend. Your unfailing father, when he's that to you every day in prayer, it can change your life. It can change your marriage. It can change your family. It can change our church. And so I'm looking forward to beginning that series then. But let's close uh, the book of James with, with the last two verses. Before I read those, let me say this. One of the most heartbreaking yet regular things about being a Christian and especially an involved church member is watching the people you love wander away from God. It's heartbreaking and it happens too often. Perhaps you watch a family that endures a painful trial. You watch them slowly disconnect themselves from church. They may never say it out loud, but you sense what is happening. Their confusion, their lack of answers for why is this happening in our lives has led them to be just a little bit less passionate about God. So they slowly disconnect from ministry. They slowly stop attending the services they used to attend and often leave church altogether. 
In almost a polar opposite way, though, you see others who do attend church. Yet that's the entirety of their expression of faith. There aren't any real works for Christ that show from their life. In fact, apart from an hour every Sunday, their supposed allegiance to Christ is nearly forgotten. You can just tell by their social media profile or by their reputation in town or at work. They say they're Christians, but you watch that in every sense of the word, they they just don't live like it. Then there are others who don't drift in the sense of leaving church or leaving their faith, but they drift in their character and integrity. A believer that was once a humble, submissive type of servant of God is now known as a gossip. A person who had a servant's heart becomes a divisive person, always finding their way into drama. A person that was once known in the church for being a person of godly wisdom is now solving their problems and getting their way by using worldly wisdom. Did you know that each of the scenarios I just described are 21st century examples of the same spiritual issues that James was addressing in his letter? The person who drifts from the faith during a trial because they can't get their questions answered is addressed in chapter 1. The person who has faith but not works is addressed in chapter 2. The divisive person who uses their tongue for evil is addressed in chapter 3. And the person who uses worldly wisdom to get their way is is mentioned in chapter 4. See, while this letter from James has been preached and taught for thousands of years, the reality is that there will always be Christians who find themselves wandering away from the truths that we've learned together from this book over the last several months. That's why James closes his book by telling these believers and telling us today what we're supposed to do when a Christian around us wanders from the truth. In short, he tells us to go after them, to to, to go get them, to help the wandering Christian. Can I ask you this? What do you typically do when someone you love wanders away from the Lord? How do you typically respond? Do you intervene? Do you check in? You just leave them to make their own decisions because after all, it's between them and God. Do you just quietly pray and hope they'll return to the Lord someday? Or do you go after them? Do you take decisive action? Do you step toward the wonder with grace and love and compassion? There's all kinds of ways that we could respond to or wonder, which kind of reminds me of a man I read about that wandered off on his own. He fell into a ditch and he couldn't get out. While he was down in the ditch, Aurelius came by and said, this is a ditch and you fell in it. Then he walked by. An optimist came by and said, I believe in you. I believe you can get out of the ditch. Then he walked by. A pessimist came by and said, you'll never get out of that ditch. And he walked by. A philosopher came by and said, you only think you're in a ditch. He walked by. A reporter came by and said, I'll pay you for an exclusive story of life in a ditch. Then walked by. A city official came by and said, do you have a permit to be in that ditch? (laughs) Then walked on by. An IRS agent came by and said, have you paid your taxes for being in that ditch? A preacher even came by and said, I see three noteworthy facts about being in a ditch. (laughs) 
Then a friend came by and said, give me your hand. I want to help you out of the ditch. A Christian brother or sister is somebody who walks in when everybody else walks out. They're the kind of person that stops and helps when everyone else walks on by. Is this what you do when you see your brother in Christ wander away from the truth and fall? Do you reach out and help or do you walk on by? The way you answer that question is very important because it could make the difference between someone staying connected to God or someone walking away from the truth never to return. Your response to their uh, wandering away or lack thereof could make the difference not just in their life and in their future, but in their family's life, their church's life. This is what James desires to get across to us in these two verses. He uses just two verses to give just three reasons for why you and I should help the wandering Christian. Let's read them. Brethren. If any of you do err or err or stray from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Here's the first reasons for why you should help the wonder. You should help the wondering Christian because it's your responsibility. You'll notice that James doesn't use a bunch of ink trying to convince these believers of their responsibility to help their friend who's drifted from the truth. Two verses, a couple of phrases. He simply assumes these believers already know it's their responsibility. That's why he cuts to the chase. Did you notice he says, brethren, those of you who are saved, those of you who are in Christ, those of you who gather together to worship every Sunday, there's going to be those among you who err from the truth. They will wonder, they will drift, they will stray from what they know is right. And then notice how he words the next phrase. And one convert him. He didn't say, if one of you wonder from the truth, it's probably a good idea. I mean, if you have time, if it's not going to get awkward, If it's part of your personality, it's probably a good idea to go and help that person. No, James says, if any of you wonder from the truth and one of you converts the wonderer. He's simply assuming that the default response of God's people will be to go and convert or help or rescue his wondering brother or sister in Christ. Just like if one of you saw a little child drowning at the city pool. It's just assumed That you're going to stop what you're doing, jump into the water, and help the child. And shame on you if you don't. And James assumes the same thing among believers. If one is struggling, the other will go and help. It's an assumed posture of every Christian. That idea was just cemented even more through Jesus' teaching in the other New Testament epistles. Can Can I read a couple of those verses to you? Luke 15, verse 4. What man of you, Jesus said, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? Jesus assumes that any good shepherd is going to go after wandering sheep. Galatians 6, 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. 1 Thessalonians 5, now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Comfort the feeble-minded. 
Support the weak. Be patient toward all men. Notice that not a single one of these commands was given solely to a pastor or to a deacon. But rather to the brothers and sisters inside of the church. To the Christian lay person. It was an assumed responsibility in the entire early church. Sadly, this idea of going after the wandering Christian, notice so clearly commanded in Scripture, is not happening amongst most Christians and in most churches today. I'm not saying that you close the door to wandering Christians, and I don't think our church does. I think our church knows that, that, that Jesus Christ welcomes home prodigals. He welcomes home those that have, have, have fallen into a season of confusion and despair and even sin. And if they come back to Fellowship Baptist Church, you better know they're welcome here. And I believe our church believes that. But I don't know if we are going after them. I don't think the, the modern church today, at least in America, as I know it, When they see somebody not coming to church anymore, gets up out of their seat and goes to that person. Why? Why? Why have we assumed a posture of just waiting and not going? Well, first, I think a lot of Christians have seen this kind of confrontation done in the wrong way. And it's caused them to do what human beings often do when they don't like something they see, overcorrect. And so they just don't do it at all. Maybe you've seen a Christian confront a wondering, backslidden believer with an overbearing, nosy spirit. Thinking it's their job to tell everyone what to do and how to do it. What I found is that oftentimes those types of people are more focused on their preferences than on moral and biblical truth. So it only leaves a bad taste in our mouths. You may have been the victim of somebody's hateful approach. You were the wonder at some point in your life. And the people that claim to be God-loving Christians are the ones that guilted you and shamed you and gossiped about you. It's only by God's grace you find your way back to a church today. But because of how you were treated, you don't even want to risk that your confrontation with another believer, even done graciously, will cause them to feel the same way that that person made you feel. Overcorrection. Some of us may not go after the wonder, listen here, because our American value of privacy and independence has taken an unhealthy precedent over the Bible. Where we all operate with this assumption that we're going to deal with our problems, we're going to mind our business, and we let them deal with their problems on their own. There are some in here, I believe, who are probably naturally people pleasers. You don't want to risk coming across judgy. And you know how sensitive our culture is today. You don't want to come across, you don't want to be misunderstood as pushy or better than another person. And so your insecurity about how you'll be perceived keeps you from doing what you know you should do by way of gentle confrontation. And to be frank with you, some don't go after the wanderers in our church because they're not connected enough to anyone in our church to even know they're wondering in the first place. Whatever the reason... Church members today aren't very good at fulfilling this responsibility of helping the wandering Christians in their life. Instead, here's what we're good at. We're good at ignoring it. We become used to the fact that in any American church, there's going to be the faithful and there's going to be the unfaithful. And I will go and worship with the faithful and just let the unfaithful do their thing. And we come in week in and week out and we are numb to those that aren't here. 
Or we just talk about the wanderer, but we never talk to them. I know how it works. When someone stops attending our church or not attending as regularly, another church member will come to us and they will say something along this line. Hey, have you seen so-and-so? I haven't seen them come to church in a long time. And when that person responds by saying, no, I haven't seen them. Then the other person says, you know what? That's really sad. I wonder why they just all of a sudden stop coming to church and they go on for a five minute conversation about this person. They talk about them, but never to them. Can I give you just a good tip? If in a conversation, something tempts you to talk about a person, that is the number one indicator you should be talking to them. Here's another common response in what we're really good at. We're really good at praying for the wanderer, but not following up our prayers with action. We're super good at justifying our our inaction by saying, hey, all we can do is pray. No, prayer is the first thing you should do, but it's not all you should do. If a baby's drowning in the water, I'm not going to get on my knees and say, God, would you save the baby? I'm jumping in the water. And then as I jump in the water, I'm praying in my mind the entire time. God, save this baby. God, save this baby. God, save this baby. And some of us in our sanctified suits and ties and dresses are sitting in an air-conditioned building that's paid off every Sunday. And we're praying for the prodigals in our life. And then we just go about our life like we never prayed in the first place. No, you pray as if everything depends upon God. Then you work as if everything depends on you. You get to an altar, you pray for the prodigal, then you pick up a shovel and get to work. You go after them. I don't know if you're catching my burden today. But I am burdened as the pastor of this church by the lack of personal responsibility taken. By the lay people and leaders alike in our church to first notice when someone is wondering, to second pray for them, and third to go after them with the intent of helping them find their way back to the Lord. I am burdened by how many wanderers are still blinded by their sin because one or two people from our church who they were close to never went after them to gently remind them that they're straying from the truth and not living in submission to Christ. I wonder how many who used to be part of our church would still be part of our church if someone in their connection group cared enough to go after them when they first started wandering away. I wonder how many teenagers and college students who've grown up in our church and who were taught Bible truth their entire life would still be here today had another teenager or college student spoken up and said something to them when they first started to see them drift. I wonder how many marriages would still be intact had another couple cared enough to intervene when they saw the signs of an unhealthy marriage. But no, we stay quiet. We just sit down in our pews and we sing our songs and we know when to stand and we know when to sit and we know when to give and we know when to come out and we know when to come in and we never even think about the people who used to be here that are no longer here. Someone can stop coming to your connection group for two months. Never even occurs to you to pray for them or to text them or to go after them. After all, It's in between them and God, right? Wrong. 
If you know of a wondering Christian in our church or in your connection group or someone used to serve within a ministry or someone that used to sit in the same row you sit in every week and they're not here as much or they're not here any longer at all, go get them. Lovingly, graciously, and patiently see what you can do to bring them back to the Lord. Hear me, that is your business. It's not your business to scold them. It's not your business to shame them. It's not your business to judge them and condemn them and make them feel unloved in any way, shape, or form. But it is your business to care for their soul. It's your business to invite them back. It's your business to text them and say, I'm praying for you, haven't seen you in a while. That is your responsibility. I'm afraid our church would probably be double the size if we were better at going after wandering Christians. That's what James wants us to understand first. It's your responsibility. Then he gives us another reason in verse 20. Look, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death. Notice, secondly, you should help the wandering Christian because you can save them from the painful consequences of their sin. When James says save a soul from death, I don't believe he's talking about eternal separation from God in hell. We know he's talking about believers because at the beginning of verse 19, he says, brethren, if any of you stray. Brethren, those that are in Christ, if you walk away from what you know is right, if you drift, if you get backslidden, Then those that are not backslidden go after the backslidden because when you do, there's a possibility that you could save their soul from death. What does that mean? Well, James could be talking about physical death. I mean, after all, last week we talked about sickness that is caused by someone's sin just in the verses above it. And someone needs to confess their sin in order to be healed in some cases. That could be what he was referring to. I think James is likely talking about death here in the same way he talked about it in in chapter 1. Verse 15, then when lust hath conceived, because we're talking about people that stray, that follow their sin more than their Savior. It's their lust. When it hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. The general consequence of sin is the opposite of a living and vibrant relationship with God. When you wander from the truth, watch here, your fellowship with God is always hindered. On top of that, sin can cause our joy to be stolen. Sin can cause our peace to be robbed. It can cause stress to increase in our life. It can cause our health to decline. It can, it, it can cause our finances to get messed up. It can cause our family to fall apart. It can bring about serious addictions that have consequences for a lifetime. I'm saying sin is very, very painful. But when you have the courage and the faith to help a wandering Christian, you get a share in the joy of rescuing them from the painful consequences of sin. When you stick out your neck and kindly encourage a wondering person that they're missed and that you want to see them back in God's house, then you are, you are helping save them from the tragedy of distancing themselves from God. When you reach out to the person who has become captured by the power of sin, listen, you can help save a marriage. You can save a relationship with a child. You can save someone from the pain of addiction. 
When we recognize how painful sin is, it might help us to realize that the most loving thing we can do is reach out and help, while the most cruel thing we could do is sit back and watch. That's why you help the wanderer. It's your responsibility, and you have a chance of saving them from the awful consequences of their sin. So go after them. James finishes with one more motivation. Verse 20. Let him know that he which converteth a sinner from the air of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. This is, a, this is amazing. You should help the wandering Christian lastly because you can save them from destroying their testimony. You can cover the multitude of sins. Perhaps the longest lasting effect that sin has on our life is what it does to damage our reputation. Sometimes forever. They say, and I believe it's right, that our testimony or our reputation takes years to build but moments to destroy. Isn't that true? And isn't that what Satan loves to do? He wants us to continue in sin so that we can ruin our testimony among our family, among our workplace, our community, our church, and in turn, ruin our church's testimony among the community. When you go after the wandering Christian, you're not only protecting them from harming others, but you're saving them from harming their effectiveness for Christ and potentially their church's effectiveness for Christ. The Bible says this, listen closely. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. What does that mean? A good reputation is more valuable than money. Think about it. If someone is checking out their groceries in front of you at Dillon's and they drop a $100 bill, what are you going to do? Well, if you're a decent person, you're going to pick up the $100 bill and you're going to give it to them. Say, hey, you dropped this and they're going to really appreciate it. If you see some suspicious activity going on at your neighbor's house and it looks like somebody's up to no good and maybe they're breaking in, what are you going to do? I hope you call the police. Why? Because money and possessions are valuable. And you want to help your friends and neighbors protect those things. Yet what do you do to help your friend and fellow Christian protect their testimony? It's more valuable than riches. What do you do to help the testimony of your church stay intact? It's more valuable than possessions. When you see a brother or sister making foolish, selfish, destructive, impulsive decisions that could affect the way somebody sees their testimony or or the testimony of their family or their church, do you do what you can do to keep them from making that decision or going in that direction? Whether it be a sexually immoral decision or a shady business deal or an impulsive financial investment or a sinful habit or a negative attitude toward the church. Anything that stands the chance to hurt their testimony for Christ. Do you intervene? Do you try to say something to change their mind? Do you take the risk of disagreeing with them? No, friend, if they dropped their credit card in the parking lot today, you would chase them down, pick up the credit card, and say something. Yet they could be making a far more consequential mistake with their life, and we often remain silent. 
Do you see why it's so very important to go after the wonder? It may be hard. It may be uncomfortable. It's certainly risky. But you should do it. Because it's your responsibility to do so. You should do it because you could be saving that person from the painful consequences of sin and even from the possibility of destroying their reputation. I recently read a story about a teenager who had gone through a kind of a season of rebellion at home. It had gotten worse. It ended in this huge argument where he said things to his parents that no child living at home should ever say to his parents. He stormed out of the house. He didn't come back. A week later, he was sorrowful for his hurtful words, for his rebellious ways, but he thought he'd reached the end of the rope, the point of no return. He said too many hurtful things. So you know what he did? He, he wrote a letter of apology and that he dropped it off at the front door while his parents worked. And he admitted that the reason he dropped it off at the front door was because he didn't want to risk being rejected by his mom and dad. The letter said this. Mom and dad, after school tomorrow, I'm going to pass by. I would like a sign. If all is forgiven, would you go into my room, grab those blue sheets off my bed and hang them on the line in front of the house? If I see the blue sheets, I'll know I'm welcome to come home. If I don't, I'll pass on and not bother you anymore. When he rode by the next day, he was shocked by what he saw. Because little did he know that after the parents got his note, they stayed up all night long in a labor of love, gathering not just the blue sheets from his bed, but they spent the entire night gathering every sheet from the house, dyeing every sheet blue. And they decorated the entire front of the house with all the blue sheets so as to emphatically say, in spite of what you've done, how you've hurt us, what you've said, we love you, we forgive you, and we want you to come back home. I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like God to me. God didn't hang any sheets on the line, but he hung his son on the cross. To say, you know what? It doesn't matter what you've done. What you've said. Where you've been. My son dying the most cruel, humiliating death in history. Proves that I love you. I forgive you. I accept you. And that is more demonstrative than a house full of blue sheets. And church, this ought to be the posture of every Christian in this room, especially toward our wondering brothers and sisters. We ought to do everything short of sin to keep our brother or sister from pursuing their sin. Why? Because it's your business. They're part of your family. They're no different than your own child who would wander off into the street with busy traffic. The Bible calls us a family of God, a body of Christ. They are one of us.
God has seen fit to place them in this body, whether you like them or not, whether you think they deserve what's coming to them or not. It doesn't matter. They're God's kids and they're your brothers. And they're your sisters. And the blood of Christ runs deeper than any bitterness or any judgment or any condemnation. I I was eating lunch with a church member. I was just bragging on what God has done in our church. All these new people that are joining and getting baptized and saved. He's naturally a pessimist and so he asked me this. Well, how many... I love to hear how many have come. How many have left? I said, well, that wasn't the point of the conversation. He said, yeah, but how much bigger would our church be? How much more effective for the gospel would our church be? If we retained the ones that we've reached. Instead of just turning it over all the time. Church, we know we can't control people's choices. We can't control their decisions. But there should never be a straying brother or sister that gets away without a gentle fight. Never. Shame on us for turning the other way and claiming that we are leaving them to God. When God says, no, I've equipped you and empowered you by the Holy Spirit to restore your brother in a spirit of meekness. That's us. That's us. Who is the wondering Christian in your life today? In your connection group? In your family? In the choir? In the youth group? In the college ministry? In purpose life? Who's the person that you used to see every Sunday, but now you don't? The Holy Spirit, I guarantee you, is telling you this. Go get them. Help them. That is the word of the Lord today. Help them. Would you stand to your feet every head?